0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. We love it as we wind up our series of Conjunction Junction. We will hear from the letter of 1 John. This short letter, known as 1 John, reaffirms the message of John's gospel in a changed context. While the author of this epistle is never identified by name, it is largely believed to have been written by John the Apostle. The author of 1 John calls us to love one another, that is, to love our siblings. But that was no easy task then, and it's not an easy task now. For the first century Christians for whom 1 John was originally written were in conflict about the boundaries of their community, their theology, and the dangers of false teachings, which I'm sure none of that goes on today. The particular section we will see from in 1 John is considered one of the Bible's great love chapters. And throughout much of 1 John, God is known and described as a living being whose identity is simply and succinctly defined by love. Many translations say that God's love is quote, perfected when people love one another. The Greek word used there is the word telos, our goal. The idea is that God's love reaches its goal when it creates relationships of love with people and relationships among people as an abstraction Love falls short of that goal. But when the love of God finds expression in human love, then and there the goal is reached. Hear now this section from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16b and verses 18 through 21. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God. And God is abides in them. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, those who say, I love God, and hate their brother or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love a God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Come to tear down the walls I've built up, every wall I've built up, every wall I've built up. Because you deserve every piece of my heart, every piece of my heart, every piece of my heart.
1: This morning we wrap up our Conjunction Junction series, and I know it's been an odd series in the sense that we're just looking at these little simple words that we find in Scripture that help us understand the activity of God in the world and in our lives, maybe in new ways, that, that try to bring sort of disparate, uh, irreconcilable ideas together that maybe expand our understanding again of how God works. Before I get into this last sermon, I just want to emphasize once again that the season of Lent starts uh, this Wednesday. People often ask me, "What is Lent?" and and, uh, "When is Easter?" And, and "How do we figure out when Easter is?" You may have noticed Easter doesn't always land on the same day of every year; that it that it seems to sort of move around on our calendars from year to year, and of course. This is, um, we, we do everything we can as Christians to complicate things. And so uh, when people ask me, when does Easter begin? We say, well, it begins um, whenever the uh, first full moon of the spring equinox happens. And this is, tr- this is true. And people will say, well, so then it happens when there's a full moon. And I say, no, it's more complicated than that. It happens on the Sunday after the first full moon of the spring equinox. And people say, Okay, so when does Lent start? And I say, well, it starts 40 days prior to that. And people say, well, so you just count back 40 days. I say, no, it's more complicated than that. You have to remove the Sundays from those 40 days. And then people will say, well, does that then get us on a Sunday? And I say, no, it's more complicated than that. It starts on a Wednesday because we like to comp. And then, so they say, well, is it a happy day? No, it's more complicated than that. You show up and you get ash on your forehead and, and you think somber thoughts about your mortality. And, uh, and by then, people are so stressed out over trying to do the math that they uh, like to party the night before, and that's Fat Tuesday. That's why we call it Fat Tuesday. And some people will go all the way to New Orleans and have a night of debauchery, but here we just have a night of short-stack pancakes, and uh, we want to encourage you on that Tuesday to come. Tuesday, that's just a couple days from now, join us for a short-stack, and, um, and we'll talk more about this crazy complicated thing called Lent. Um, We're going to begin this sermon today with the question, where are you from? You ever asked or been asked that question, so where are you from? Isn't it one of the first questions you're asked when you, whenever you meet someone and they want to really get to know you, uh, so where are you from? Imagine for a minute that your spouse drags you uh, to some party or social event with people that you don't know and, and she says, pretend like you really want to be here. And so you meet a stranger, you shake hands, you exchange names, maybe you mention who you know or who you're with or uh, how you're really enjoying the shrimp cocktail with antipasto skewers and sun-dried tomatoes because you're an introvert, right? And this is super awkward and this stranger has cornered you and you really just want to go home, right? But this stranger is a big-time extrovert and, and uh, he's not picking up on your overtly reclusive vibe, and he really wants to be your new best friend, and so he asks you that really complicated but deeply personal question. So, where are you from? And this is the exact moment when your night just got unbearably longer, right? Because naming where we're from and, 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 and the places we come from, the tribes, the, the families, the, the geography, it, it has a way of revealing so much about who we are, doesn't it? Our identity, our story a little bit, maybe, maybe even our values and worldview. If someone were to tell you they're from Manhattan or Chicago or S- San Francisco, would that in some way at least give you a, a little bit of idea maybe about the kind of life they've lived? Or if they say I'm from Aspen or Compton or Maui or Enid, Oklahoma? Does that information in any way give you insight into who they are or might be? I moved, as many of you know, from San Diego to Colorado about 10 years ago, but if you really were to ask me where I'm from, I would tell you I was raised in a little town called Yucaipa, California. And if you knew anything at all about Yucaipa, probably your next question would be, which trailer park, right? Or which chicken farm? At the time in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was it's full of trailer parks and, and chicken ranches. Where we come from reveals a little bit of who we are. Not everything. But where we come from, our place, our family, our tribe, always reveals something about us. And isn't this why we will spit in a tube and ship it off to some lab somewhere to have our DNA analyzed? Because we want to know where we've come from. It's why... Uh, Some people who might have been adopted as children would seek out their biological parents, uh, curious about who and where they've come from. This is why we pass down heirlooms to our kids or create family trees or maybe visit the cemeteries of our ancestors. It's a way of remembering where we're from. It means something. Where are you from? This is a question that is as old as humanity itself and every culture, every tribe, every people of every corner of the earth has sought in some way to answer that question. We all want to know our, what we call our origin story and not just our personal origin stories. But we want to know uh, where that story goes all the way back in time so that we have a sense of where it all started for all of us together, where we all originally came from. And for Jews and, and Christians, uh, the very first book of our Bible, the book of Genesis, is itself an origin story. And the book of Genesis gets its name from the opening line of that book, which says, in the beginning. And in the Greek, beginning uh, is the word Genesis. And so the first two chapters of Genesis describe in beautiful metaphor, and poetic verse, our origin story, where we all come from. Now, there are two origin stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And these, both of them, were never meant to be taken literally. To read those two chapters as actual history would be to rob them, completely rob them of their artistic beauty and their ev- evocative mythos, if you will. The Jews and Christians believe that these first two chapters in Genesis actually transcend historical fact because they are trying to reveal deeper, more enduring truths about where we come from. But while the book of Genesis is the first book in our Bible, many people are surprised here that it's not actually the oldest book of the Bible. Did you know this? Most scholars believe that the first two chapters in our book of Genesis, as they are composed currently, were uh, written sometime around the year 500 BCE, That's about 2,500 years ago, and that, in fact, they are, are reflecting two different accounts of creation. Scholars believe that these two chapters were written during the period of Jewish exile. It was just after the Jews had been conquered by the Babylonian army, and after their defeat, some of those surviving Jews stayed back in the rubble of Jerusalem, but But a lot of those Jews, especially those deemed most influential, if you will, uh, were taken into Babylon. And so your poets, your scholars, your priests, your artisans, uh, your Instagram influencers, those were all taken into Babylon. And they stayed there for about 70 years. While they were in Babylon, they were exposed to all these creation stories of their pagan captors and one of the most common and popular creation stories at that time for the babylonians was what they called the enuma elish maybe you've heard of this it is the babylonian creation story and it says that the creation of this world was uh, happened when when there was this great battle between these two gods and one god was a male and one was a female And in their creation story, the male god kills the female god and then, quite sadly, uh, tears her body apart and then uses one half of her body to create the heavens and the other half to create the earth. This is not exactly your picker-upper kind of origin story, by the way. And maybe that's exactly why the Babylonians were such a cruel and violent people. Because their origin story said that they had come from cruelty and violence. According to their origin story, the whole engine of the universe was fueled by, by brutality and carnage and destruction. That, they said, was their starting point, where they came from. The forces that gave the universe life and then life were violence, and bloodshed, and death. And so the Jews in captivity uh, began to hear and be exposed to these stories, and they decided, while in captivity, to record their own creation stories. Hear this. They recorded them. They didn't invent them. They had begun to remember the stories that their ancestors had told them over the years. And this was all oral tradition. And so they began to write these stories down. And that is what we have 2,500 years later, Those first two chapters of the book of Genesis come from that experience of those Jews in exile who were trying to redefine their identity over and against a narrative of destruction that the the Babylonians were perpetuating. Instead of stories about creation out of bloodshed and severed body parts, the Jewish captives wrote this elegant poem. About a generous God who loves it so much that he breathes his very spirit into it. And then over and over again sits back and says, it's so good. These, these became the origin stories that defined the captive Jews and gave them a unique identity in a, in a context of many foreign influences. And at the time, these creation stories answered the question for them. Is the engine of the universe fueled by death and violence, or is it fueled by love and goodness? And that's the question I want you to ask yourself today. When we ask ourselves where we are from, what we're really asking is, I think, what are the forces that fuel our lives? Because we understand that where we start from often determines where we end up, where how we understand our beginning point will influence in some way the trajectory of our lives. And this is just not spiritual talk. This is the leading indicator of those living in poverty as adults, right, is that they would grow grow up in poverty. Those that, that would end their lives with illiteracy Uh, Began in illiteracy. We know that how we start often determines how we end. And the Jews had to answer this question in exile Will I see myself as coming from death and destruction or love and goodness? Every generation must choose between these two dominant narratives that we face every day. Do I come from love and goodness or do I come from hatred and fear and violence? Our creation story that we have says that our starting place is goodness and love. And it says that we were created in, quote, the image and likeness of a good and loving God. Let us make humans in our image according to our likeness, it says. We, each of us, in our own unique and diverse ways, bear the image and likeness of a good and loving God. Did you know this? Have you ever looked in the mirror, and as you look in the mirror, you see a reflection of your own mother's likeness? Maybe it's in your eyes, or your chin, or the way you hold your shoulders. Have you ever looked at your hands, or the way your hair sticks up to one side, or the way your, the way your eyebrows sometimes get super, super bushy, um, and, and you see your father or your grandfather or your uncle? In such moments, we come to remember where we came from. And our origin story in Scripture says it works that way with God. We were made in the image and likeness of God, our creator, who is good and loving. And for centuries, there was a concept that developed out of this idea. It was called the Imago Dei. It's Latin. It, 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 it becomes this foundational doctrine to both Judaism and Christianity. And the Imago Dei says we were created in the image and likeness of God out of love and goodness, which means that every time God looks at each of us, God finds us lovely and good. In the creation poem Genesis 1, there's this beautiful sequence where, where God sits back each day at the end of uh, the creative act and calls it good. God creates light and it says, God says it's good. God creates the sky and God calls it good. God creates the seas, of the the vegetation, the earth, night and day, creepy, crawly creatures, then human beings, and then says, it's good. And at the end of it, on the sixth day, just before the Sabbath, God looks back and says, it's all very good. Everything starts, our origin story is a place of goodness and love. And if that's true, that, we, that where we start from will inevitably shape where we're going, then our origin story that begins in love and goodness Promises that as we live our lives, it will lead to fuller expressions of goodness and love. What 1 John calls perfection in love over time, maturity. But look, friends, while it sounds hopeful and logical, this is not the guiding narrative of the modern world for most of us. The image that we often have of ourselves is far different from the Imago Dei. Uh, The image and likeness of God that makes us lovely and beautiful is so often obscured and disfigured by the forces of shame. Shame is a universal human experience, but it is not a product of the origin story of the Bible. It is not a characteristic of the Imago Dei. Many of you read Brene Brown. You know, she spent her whole career studying the destructive effects of shame on our lives. And she defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. In other words something we've experienced or done or failed to do has made us unworthy of human and divine connection. We all experience shame and guilt but there's a difference between the two. Guilt of course comes to all of us and it's often helpful. We blow it We do harm to ourselves or to others. We trip up, mess up, stumble, and we experience that remorse or sadness that comes from doing something we wish we hadn't have done. And what guilt says to us is, what you did was wrong. And that is a catalyst for many of us for change and reconciliation and transformation. Guilt reminds us, you can do better. And who among us doesn't need to hear that sometimes? Sometimes. But shame is different. Shame is that harsh inner critic inside of us that tells us you're just not good enough regardless of how hard you try. And instead of telling us what you did was wrong, what shame says is who you are is wrong. And shame comes from forces within us and forces outside of us, but it never, ever comes from God. It comes most naturally, I think, from this invisible but often overactive disapproval gland that's found in each of us and that gland is is fueled by past traumas that we never heal and broken relationships that never reconcile and forgiveness that we never ask for or receive it's fueled by the weaknesses that we all know we have that we're afraid to befriend it comes from shadows that that are in each of us uh, that that we keep from the light of God's grace and this disapproval gland, it can become so overactive for us that we allow it to control our lives and the way we see ourselves and the way we see God and the way we see others as unlovable until eventually we convince ourselves that we're just too flawed to be fixed. But this kind of shame, we all know, can be healed if we're daring enough. We can be in the spaces of good people and good places where, uh, like this, where grace abounds in community and accountability. We can heal it through prayer and through therapy, through honesty, through 12 steps. But what makes this shame, I think, all the more unbearable for us is what I would call toxic Christianity. There's nothing more dominant right now in the Christian communities of this world than this idea of shame and how God finds us inherently disappointing. For too many Christians, this narrative of divine disappointment and disapproval becomes the origin story, if you will. Uh, It's been handed down over the centuries in the form of a doctrine that has come to be known as original sin. And the original sin stands in direct contradiction to the more important doctrine of Imago Dei. Did you know the phrase original sin doesn't even occur anywhere in the Bible? It is actually completely rejected by all forms of Judaism. It is a uniquely Christian invention and mostly a toxic one. The concept of original sin comes from a single verse found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in which Paul references the story in Genesis 3 when Adam famously disobeys God's command to, quote, not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. You know the story. In this one verse, Paul implies that this was exactly the moment in history when sin and death entered the world through Adam's one willful act of disobedience. Later on, a, a, a wonderful man, a bishop by the name of Augustine, who contributed greatly to Christian theology, he coined this concept of original sin. And Augustine said that the very moment that Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, all humanity, all of us, became fallen in nature. Adam's sin, he said, was the original sin that now permanently separates us from God so that the, every one of us here uh, are born into this world, fallen, broken, broken unworthy, even babies, the moment of their first breath, even toddlers and cute little onesies, they're corrupt. And much later, Calvin came along, he, he kind of piled on, he said that uh, um, ever since Adam's act of disobedience, we suffer from what he called total depravity, and those in the evangelical movement today must subscribe. That's the first doctrine, T, total depravity, God's wrath, it says, is ever against us. And there is nothing by our own power we can do to appease God, to eliminate the wrath and bridge the gap between us and God except one thing, and that is to accept Jesus as our Savior and the atoning sacrifice for the punishment that each of us deserve. Wesley, by the way, also added to this, and that's not very helpful. But over the centuries, original sin Became Christianity's dominant origin story. Christians completely skipped over the love and goodness that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. And we went straight to the sinfulness of Adam's disobedience in Genesis 3. And when we did that, we forsook Imago Dei and chose original sin. And we stopped seeing ourselves as created in the image and likeness of a good and loving God. And we grew deaf to that pronouncement of God that says, we're all good. And in doing so, we turned God into a judge and a punisher instead of a creator and a lover. And then we turned Jesus into the solution to our shame and our sin. Instead of the way, truth, and life by which we can transform our sin and shame. Don't get me wrong. Sin abounds. It is our reality. I just don't think we have to scapegoat one guy thousands of years ago. Maybe this is why there are so many unhealthy, unhappy Christians today. And maybe this is why there are a growing number of ex-Christians today. And worse, maybe this is why more and more people are just rejecting it because they don't want to be a Christian if that's what it means to believe. Because if we start from a place of sinfulness and divine disapproval, we'll likely just end there as well. If we don't begin from a place of love and goodness, it's hard to be perfected in love and goodness. If we turn Jesus into the mere solution to our problems, we will never, ever Grow up enough to transform our problems by the power and grace of Christ. Instead, we will only perpetuate and transmit those problems onto others. And this is the message of 1 John you heard Reverend Jerry preach. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And there's no fear in love, no fear. But perfect love casts out all fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And here's our conjunction. He says, we love because He loved us first. You know that God is too busy loving you to ever feel disappointment in you. I've mentioned David Roche, before, he's a, a wonderful man in his late 60s now. He um, is the self-proclaimed pastor of what he calls the Church of 80% Sincerity. You're probably thinking, it might be a it might be a good church to join. His mission is to help people believe that they are loved and lovable at least 80% of the time, and who couldn't relate to that? And he uses his own life story to tell that message. He was born with a large benign tumor on the bottom left quadrant of his face. As a baby, they removed it and they hit it with radiation and it prevented his face from growing and gave him all these plum-colored scars. Uh, Now he's late in his 60s. He speaks all over the country about the hidden scarred parts of each of us and the fear and the shame that we carry around because we think we're unlovely. And he says that every one of us have this fear, whoever we are, of being unworthy and unlovely. And he says countless times every day we are, we are driven to moments of despair when we think that we don't belong and that we're not lovely enough. But he says every person, no matter what their appearance, must reach the point of self-acceptance. And that's the magical moment and the key to living an integrated and full life. This is the good news that comes from 1 John 4. It says we can have and find self-acceptance and the acceptance of others that we find unlovely because God loved us first. And we we can love ourselves. We can love others because from the very beginning, our origin story begins in love and goodness and not fear and hate. This is the last and the most important of all the conjunctions. Because but maybe it's the hardest to accept. Our takeaways for today, our starting point is divine love and goodness. We each bear the unique image and likeness of God. And we can find love for ourselves and others because God loved us first. Amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.